Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, my guest today is Christos Chinopoulos. He's at uh, Semmelweis University in Hungary. He's an associate professor. He's a project manager of the RPPA facility, which we'll get into, and we're going to talk about cancer and cancer metabolism. So, Christos, thank you for coming. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. Yeah, tell me, what is the RPPA, first of all, and then tell me about your research, please. Okay, RPPA stands for Reverse Phase Protein Array, and... uh, For those who are familiar with the technique of Western blotting, it is like Western blotting on steroids. And to put it in in very simply words, it is able to kind of semi-quantify expression of several uh, hundreds of proteins for thousands of samples. And uh, this can be applied on uh, solid tumors or healthy material. And uh, several proteins on a single pathway can be examined at the same time. And it can give you semi-quantitative expression where the, the proteins are up or down regulated. And uh, as a, an extension of this, you can have an idea whether this pathway is important in cancer metabolism or not. Oh, interesting. So you, you can tell the level of regulation of these proteins. Is that what you're saying with this array? You can say the level of expression and whether this is regulation. Yes, that, that can be deduced later on. If you do this multiple times, Will it tell you, does it lead back to epigenetic marks? And are they the cause of the up or down regulation of the protein expression? You can go after the reasoning why you have up or down regulation. That is, that is one of the, uh, of the things that can be done after RPPA. Or what you can do is that uh, if you see a pathway, for example, is upregulated in cancer, then you can try to find an inhibitor for this pathway. Or you can claim that this pathway is important for cancer, but not for healthy tissue. You have several targets amenable to chemotherapeutic intervention pretty soon, right after an RBBA run. So this works on solid tumors, or does it work on uh, blood as well? It can work uh, on blood as well, but our facility is made to accept uh, exclusively solid tumor material. So what, a biopsy will be done, or after a resection or a surgery, and then you'll what, you'll swab the tumor, or you will immerse it in a fluid? I mean, how how do you get the information to the array? Okay, so the workflow is that uh, there is uh, always a surgery and then by law, the tumor material ends up in the pathology department for which they are going to categorize and classify the tumor. And then in many circumstances, uh, uh, small parts of the tumors are, are given to different facilities for diagnostic or research. So in the vast majority of cases, we get a part of the tumor and in most of the cases, we, all, we also get surrounding healthy tissue as well. Uh, we usually get uh, uh, 20 to 200 milligrams. So it's a very, very small amount of tumor. That we... Okay. So how do you test the tumor material and also the healthy tissue? Is it is it composed typically of the same organ or same tissue type? And do you test that as well for comparison? Yes, yes. It's the, so it is very important to compare it to something. And the best is if we have healthy tissue from the same patient for comparisons. It's not always the case. 
especially for example if it is a, a very critical organ let's let's say for brain it's very rare that we have a corresponding healthy material but if it is a breast or a kidney or liver in many circumstances we also have a, a healthy material together with the tumor tissue but we do not we always get those from the pathology institute so the tumor has already been classified i mean okay. the classification of tumor is already known so what kind of information do you learn from analyzing these uh these tumors for their protein expression? Well, we we have, of course, hypotheses that we are testing. We are particularly interested in the uh, metabolic features of tumors, and we look for proteins participating in biochemic pathways, which are important for um, tumor survival uh, during ad- in uh, adverse microenvironments. For example, many tumors, they grow up uh, uh, during anoxic conditions or in the presence of several mitochondrial DNA mutations, and uh, they alter their uh, biochemical pathways to accommodate for that. So we are interested in those proteins that uh, form these pathways. So, and these pathways can be literally hundreds to, to hundreds of them. Uh, each tumor may have may may employ a different biochemical pathway for for uh, harnessing energy. And we are looking into that. Which which tumor is depending on which type of pathway? Do you look at um, primary tumors only or metastases? And do you compare uh, metastases versus primary tumor? Like, do you typically get in a sample both or just one? Typically, we get one, but uh, we all sometimes get recurrent from the same patient. And in these cases, it's also metastasis. Uh, The capacity of the RPPA facility is is, uh, to serve the needs of approximately 50 million people. So this is usually for six or seven countries. Yeah, it's not it's not for a hospital or two hospitals. Well, so, the reason why I ask is that the microenvironment of the primary tumor, you know, it'll be so the tumor itself will be composed of that tissue, you know, the primary typically, but the metastases will be a very, you know, it could be probably a more hostile microenvironment because, you know, you may have breast cancer cells and that are metastasizing in the liver, and now it's a in the environment by definition is very different. So that's why I asked if you look at primary versus metastases for the protein expression. That is true. There is a huge, There are huge differences between primary and metastatic tumors. And even within tumors themselves, you find cell-to-cell specific differences. So each, each tumor cell is almost different than another. It's not homogeneous as a, as a tissue. But that is actually a major drawback in cancer research, that the, the so-called uh, tissue uh, tumor heterogeneity. Almost every cell is different. When you get the tumor material, is it is it all from one part of the tumor? Like if I imagine a two centimeter diameter tumor and I just picture it as a sphere, do you get one part of the tumor or do you get kind of a mixture of material from all over the tumor that was just scraped together and given to you by pathology? We get one part of the tumor. Unfortunately, the tumor collection is a weak part of the RPPA because it usually depends on the surgeon uh, or somebody in the pathology department who doesn't really care of what happens with the tissue downwards. So we get material many times which is not suitable for RBPA because it's too far on the edge of the tumor or it is too much in the center of the tumor, which is necrotizing. But, you know, power in the numbers, when we get hundreds or thousands of samples, in the end, we end up with a sizable amount that we can work with. Well, what do you notice? Like when you get a sample, do you know where it came from in the tumor? Do they have imagery and show you I guess you no, call it the provenance where it comes from, or is it just they give it to you and you have to see if it works or not? Uh, we only know is where it, come, where it came from. And then the, uh, 
we get a number which corresponds to the patient, but this is all uh, encrypted in the end. So I only I only get to see you know how does the tumor look like, and and after I homogenize it, what is the protein and lipid composition? That's all. But the well, tumor you might, I, mean, like, I don't know if they'll do it for you, but I mean you don't have to know the patient's name or anything, but. If they did an image of before they took out the tumor and then pointed, put an arrow to where on the tumor, they give you the material and send that to you. That might help a lot. Yes, that can happen because uh, I can decrypt legally, of course, the, where, where did it come from? And then by knowing the social security of the patient, then I can track the progress, uh, what kind of uh, examination did the patient have? And I can see if they did anything regarding imaging of the tumor or any kind of uh, adjuvant, uh, uh, let's say, blood work that can give you more information. So what have you noticed? What, what are some of the correlations that you've observed so far? How many, how many have you looked at? How many tumors? So far, we focus on breast, kidney, and brain. And um, what I can tell you is that uh, uh, we have a pre- from a big project that's going on, we are trying to correlate the effect of uh, mutations on, on non mutations on, on breast tumors that they have on the uh, protein expression level of the same proteins. And um, what we see is that it's an extreme heterogeneity, really extreme heterogeneity. You cannot really deduce that there is one particular type of tumor with one part with, with a phenotype that it is that, I don't know, 60 or 70 percent of the population have it from them, from those, of course, that. They harbor a tumor. This uh, heterogeneity is, is very, very striking. Well, uh, is there heterogeneity also in the protein expression? Or is it just the, you know, the mutations? I, I would guess there would be just the mutations both. in the it's cells causing it. Yes, it's on both. All right, so what kind of patterns have you observed? Like, I don't yeah. know, have you, have you, well, another question, have you looked at tumors pre and post chemo? Because I would think that would up the heterogeneity, you know, of the tumor uh, after chemo. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. We don't have uh, sufficient material of the same patient before and after chemotherapy, but what what is known in the literature is that uh, after chemotherapy, the uh, protein expression and gene expression changes very much. Well, again, what are some of the things that you observe? What, what are patterns? What are what insights have you gotten? Like how many how many samples have you done? I'm sure quite a bit, and you've got to have some insights. That we, approximately 3,000 samples we have done. We actually have got uh, more insight regarding uh, bioenergetic preference, what type of, uh, let's say, food does the tumor prefer over a healthy tissue, and the heterogeneity, what I just mentioned. Uh, it's very preliminary, but... Uh, it seems like that uh, many tumors, they, and this is uh, concurrent with the existing literature, they prefer those, kind, those type of substrates which are available from the immediate environment, from the surrounding healthy tissue. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, with amino acid glutamine, for example. Yeah, I've heard of glutamine, yeah. So, so what's the function that you've observed 
and what happens when it gets up or down regulated? So we see both on the protein and also in the genetic expression level that there is a huge upregulation of the proteins responsible for the catabolism of glutamine in many tumors. Yeah, because I've heard tumors, they don't use oxidative phosphorylation. They use like a fermentation process. So I guess they're very heavy, heavily glucose and glutamine dependent, right? That's true. The glucose consumption is very, very high in tumors, but it's not for the purpose of energetics. It's because during the process of glycolysis, many of the uh, substrates, they, they diverge into um, anabolic metabolism. But uh, the pathway of glutamine catabolism is very important from the bioenergetic point of view for the tumor because it does not need to follow oxidative phosphorylation. It can go through fermentation pathways. But you said the, the glucose is not used for energy. It's used for what? For anabolic uh, metabolism, because during glycolysis, several metabolites diverge. They go into side pathways for uh, uh, forming material, which are important for the formation of new cells, like glycolipids and sphingolipids. Oh, so they're, it's more diverted towards building new material. That's the yeah. anabolic component. But do they exist in a lower energetic state? Because, or is it glutamine takes the place of glucose somehow to help them uh, produce energy? Like, like what is the main driver of, it, of a cell's energy that's a cancer cell? It's for sure glutamine and some other amino acids, not glucose. They are not of the same energy state. They do not require the same extent of energy like uh, highly, uh, let's say like neurons that they fire, all, fire up all the time or cardiomyocytes. They harness sufficient amount of energy from uh, fermentation processes for growth and metastasis. So if someone had a, um, a very low glucose diet or a low sugar diet, I guess what we would expect to see is that tumor growth would slow tremendously and maybe even stop. But the tumors themselves, the, tumors, uh, the cancer cells themselves wouldn't necessarily die because they're using glutamine essentially as fuel to keep them alive. Yeah, there is a correlation between uh, uh, low glucose consumption and uh, diminished growth rate. And this is actually the basis of the ketogenic diet. Uh, unfortunately, tumor material is not, is not possible to decrease glucose concentration, blood glucose concentration to the extent that you can stop or reverse tumor growth because the, the tumor requires very little. I don't think you can go into such a starvation state that you can decrease blood glucose concentration to such an extent, but it definitely helps. And it will also help very much if you diminish the uh, glutamine provision to the tumor as well. This too will have a very good effect diminishing tumor growth and metastasis. How do normal cells use glutamine and glucose versus cancer cells? Like, What's the difference? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, normal cells, you know, there are some cells that they rely exclusively on glucose, for example, like red blood cells, or there are other cells which rely very heavily on glutamine, for example, T cells. So there isn't, you, there isn't really a rule of thumb that you can say about the healthy cells. Some need glucose, some need glutamine, some need both, but not to the extent that the cancer cells need. So the cancer cells utilize glucose and glutamine like there is no tomorrow. So if you were able to um, uh, inhibit the provision of uh, glucose and glutamine simultaneously, this, is, this would be detrimental to more survival. So are you saying cancer cells are a lot more frugal with their use of resources or it's just different than normal cells? Well, 
what, he, what I can tell you is that they depend, cancer cells depend on glucose and glutamine consumption. That is for sure. Some other amino acids as well. They cannot survive without glucose and glutamine. They will be able to enter a sleeping state without glucose and glutamine, or perhaps uh, not all of the cancer cells will die, but it would be impossible for, for having growth and metastasis without glucose and glutamine at the same time. So going back to your sampling, you said that in some cases you've been able to get a tumor sample from someone and then they, uh, they had a recurrence and then you sampled again. What was yes. observed there in the same person with the I'm recurrence? What was the yes. difference? Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, these are uh, not that many samples, uh, and they are mostly we are mostly focusing on uh, mutations that lead to the recurrence of the tumor, which all, in most of the cases means that uh, the resistance to chemotherapy has been developed. So I can't tell you more about the um, protein expression for these particular samples because there are very many, and they are not diverted into uh, looking into protein expression on the pathways that we are investigating. Do you have a choice in the samples you get? Can you say, hey, we need more you know, tumors that have been hit with chemo previously? You just take what comes. We take what comes because they are capacity. Now we work at about 5% of the total capacity. I just take what comes. I don't have a, I don't have priority list. I do not have a choice. Well, I mean, if you're serving so many places, it sounds like you would be flooded at any one time with samples or like, is it hard no. to get samples or you have too many? It's actually easy to get samples, but people, uh, people are not really willing to um, to uh, to give samples because uh, the, it is, this is a very new technique. The RPA is a very new technique, and uh, people are stuck into the um, genetic basis of tumors. So they, they they would rather rely on uh, research on genes rather than on proteins and metabolism. So we don't get as many samples as we would like, and we are not—we are definitely not flooding with samples, even though it's in the order of thousands. We can easily scale it up ten times over what we are doing right. Easily. What samples do you want? What are you looking for that you're not getting very much of? And you know, how can you push to get more of those samples? Can you take them from, you know, the U.S. or other countries? I mean, can you expand your you yes, know, of course, of you're course. You're advertising have... and say, hey, anywhere we want them, this is what we want. Yes, okay. yes. We have a lot of samples from Russia. We have some samples from Austria. Uh, I, before this pandemic, I was about to receive some samples from Greece and Turkey as well, but things got a bit uh, hectic now. The point, my, I, would like to, I would like to get as many samples as possible from Central and Eastern Europe because that's, these are you know, closer. There is no RPPA facility in Central or Eastern Europe. There are only RPP. There are only seven RPPA facilities in the whole in whole Europe. So uh, I would like to uh, to take care of, let's say, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Hungary. Uh, but for now, I, I just have uh, mostly from Russia, Austria, and hopefully uh, when this thing will be over from Greece and Turkey as well. It's it's very easy to expand because the sample that we need it doesn't need to be very fresh. It has to be between two and six hours after excision. It can be frozen at minus 20, so no dry ice is required, and can be sent overnight. It's not such a big deal to send and receive such. Are you allowed to solicit countries for samples? And have you, or are you just sticking you to, to have, certain countries in Europe? You need to have, of course, ethical permissions in place, and we do have them. And those people who provide the sample, they have to have uh, permission as well. These are doable things. It will take, of course, some paperwork, some administration, and yes, it's possible to do this, yes. Um, I wonder if you could do a bounty, you know, hey, these kind of samples we really want, we'll, we'll pay you more if you do it, you know, I don't know. Yeah, well, there is no money involved in this. 
the whole the gotcha. whole process is not monetized. Well, so what what would be some ideal samples that you want? What would you love to get that you're not getting enough of right now? What hypotheses do you want to test? Okay, so I'm actually in very big need of more healthy material, and uh, what I have, would have very much liked to to do is collaborate with a team in Hungary. So in Hungary, that you have a lot of body donors, okay. And whenever someone is dying, someone someone is dead and he's a body donor, then the team of doctors, they, they go there and they harvest all the tissues to be harvested. And I would like very much to join them because then I can get access to uh, fresh, healthy tissue material because these people are, let's say, clinically dead, but not dead yet. So it would be possible to obtain materials for them and, and they would serve as healthy controls because a healthy control is as easily important as a tumor, for example. Unfortunately, it's much easier to get tumor samples than healthy controls. If a, if a sample is frozen, how long will it last? Can it go for years? For, if it's deep frozen, minus, let's say in minus 80? Oh, yeah, for years. It should not be placed into any fixatives. If it's placed into any fixatives, then it's unusable. But minus 80, minus 80 yeah, it can go for years. Okay, well, again, so what, what hypotheses do you want to test? I wish to test the hypothesis that uh, uh, the um, metabolic pathways that we investigate, which is a small part of the glutamine catabolism pathway, is critical for tumor survival. And uh, we, we aim to uh, quantify the expression of proteins participating in that particular sub-pathway of glutamine catabolism. Are there, I guess, depend, at least in the U.S., you know, we have health insurance and stuff. When you get samples... Are there certain ones that pathology has very little interest in beyond the baseline and therefore you can get more material or you can get material from multiple sites? Well, I haven't got into this. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't faced that here in Hungary or, or from the samples that we receive from Russia or other countries. If you get samples from one person and you got primary tumor, I don't know, four or five different sites in the same tumor, that would tell you something. And if you also got like a piece of a metastasis in the same person, even if it's later on, that would tell you even more. I mean, with fewer individual people, but more samples per person, you might be able to see a lot more. Yes, yes, that's true. And that is the case with some ovarian tumors because they tend to metastasize very much. But we we have like 30 or 40 from us. So this, this is not this, this is very little to, to, to have any statistical analysis. Unless I have uh, yeah. four or 500 samples, then we don't really do any, any analysis. It's too few. Oh, really? How, do you, how many do you need? In order to, uh, you know, I mean, a cohort in a lot of experiments is very few. It could be 50, 70, 100. I mean, if you have several hundred of something, that seems like a pretty good sample size. Yeah. So the rule of thumb is below 150. It is. It doesn't make any sense to do RPPA. And uh, the optimum is around 500 and not to go above 800. Hmm. Well, what's wrong with going above 800, by the way? Uh, this, it, it reaches some limitations of the assay, and um, so it's, it's not. Uh, so, so when I don't want to go much into the technique of the RPPA, but if you, unless uh, for, at least for the for the uh, machines that we have, if you go above 800, you have to have uh, too many controls. Let's say you have to do things in batches, and you have to overlap to have many controls. That starts to be a bit too much work. Mm. Well, so I don't know. Are you close? getting enough of a sample size to test certain hypotheses like what's uh what do you expect to figure out in the next year or so yes we have enough uh, we have enough samples to 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 test the hypothesis from the breast and kidney and uh, and pretty soon from the brain as well and uh, we have actually already started in testing the hypothesis 
and which is corroborating studies that we do with uh, cancer cell lines in cultures. Mm. I hope within the next year, within within 2021 or, or maybe the next year, I will I will have some concrete data. Okay. Uh, are you observing in any of your samples that there's um, bacteria or other type of organisms that are kind of confounding the sample? Are you picking up any, um, you know, protein expression from microbiome-related stuff? We don't look for that, but I seriously doubt. But we don't look for that. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Christos, what's the best way for people to find out more uh, from you? Where can they go? Well, rppa.hu. I think they can find out everything from there. It's all in English. Oh, okay, good. Excellent. Well, Christos, very good. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Welcome. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.